You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran business enterprise, sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us for the podcast. Our guest today is the much-respected, incredibly intelligent, amazingly admired, former Lieutenant Governor Kathy Davis. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Robert. Well, there's What a lovely introduction. <laughs> Thank you. I have told several people that you were coming on the podcast and the smiles that the the mere mention of your appearance elicited, uh, not just among Democrats, but Republicans as well, uh, is a testament to how much you are admired and and how you've made a difference for a lot of folks. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Do we want to start with a get well to John Davis? Oh, that's very nice. Yes. John is home with a bad cold and we were going to meet at my house, and then that didn't work out. So I appreciate the change in venue, and yes, uh, get well, John. Well, and that's Thanks, the perfect segue. Oh, you're very welcome. He's a terrific, terrific guy. Uh, we are at McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, our home away from home, the world podcast headquarters for Leaders and Legends. Uh, Kathy, tell us a little bit about where you were born and your amazing academic career. I uh, was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Both of my parents are from the Midwest, Dayton and Evansville, um, but they both went east to college and stayed, and I grew up in the Boston area. I, uh, my parents were divorced when I was seven, and my mother, brother, and I lived near Harvard Square, right across the street from what was then the Radcliffe Library. Um, she married my stepfather, and then we moved to a town called Natick, Mass. And he was a high school teacher of government and economics. And the uh, discussion around the kitchen table with him was always about the events of the day and how they reflected or didn't reflect the Constitution of the United States. <laughs> So he was a lot of fun and gave us a great education. Um, and I went to Natick High School and then studied mechanical engineering at MIT, worked for a couple of years as an engineer, and went to business school. Where'd you go to business school? At Harvard Business School. Um, and Cummins recruited from Harvard Business School. And one of the big issues of the time when I was there was manufacturing competitiveness. And in class, we 
talked with a lot of understanding about what was wrong and what would fix it. And yet it seemed like we were struggling to actually do that. So I decided I wanted to learn more about that. I wanted to be part of maintaining American competitiveness in manufacturing and was lucky enough to come to Columbus, Indiana and work for Cummins. So when you get into MIT, tell us what that's like to go to a school so esteemed and so important to American industry? Well, it's a uh, tremendous opportunity. I don't think at the time I nearly appreciated how lucky I was to be able to do that. My father was a professor at MIT, which looking back, I'm sure helped me be accepted. It certainly also helped me think of MIT as a probably a more comfortable place than other students did who came in uh, knowing only the reputation and the admission process. But I had had the benefit of visiting my dad in his office and walking the halls of the institute from the time I was, you know, a kid, um, from the time I was 13. So if I called you a nerd... Would that be a compliment or a disparagement? Well, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder, right? <laughs> um, so I'm not sure. <laughs> well, it would be a compliment I'm sure it from fits. me. <laughs> when we get into more of your career, what did you take from MIT and the curriculum that helped you beyond just education like when's the last time you were like wow i learned that at mit and i used it today well i think uh mit provided a lot of the basis for how i think about things engineers are hoping to direct a resource to a system that gets a thing done as it is intended and reliably. And I think that model is what I apply to just about every situation. What are we trying to get done? What is our situation? How do we bring the information to the table that helps us decide what to do And then how do we track how that's going so that we continually do better? I understood most of that. Is it just a badge of honor to get to get my my son's in the Purdue School of Aviation? And I don't know if I'm more proud of him because he's in such a prestigious program because he wants to be an airline pilot or I'm just proud that he's going to college and wants to further himself that way. Was there just an extra bit of pride, like, I got into MIT? There has to be. I mean, I don't want to answer the question for you, but there has to be just a little bit of like, yeah. No, it's very exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting to be accepted and to go and walk the halls along which 
so many discoveries are being made, uh, so many brilliant people are working among so many curious and uh, students who are full of ideas. Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. Why Harvard Business School afterward? I worked a couple of years as an engineer, and I was struck by the difference between the technology that I saw available in the halls, in the classrooms at MIT, and what was happening, you know, in the regular world. (laughs) And I realized that I needed to understand much better how money and organizations work in order to adopt the solutions that we may have at our fingertips or we may have available to us but need to be put into practice. So I wanted I wanted to learn that side of things. Which was harder, MIT or Harvard Business School? Well, I think the content of the work was harder at MIT. I think... Uh, you know, it was hard problems to figure out at a fast rate and lots of work. I think it was personally more demanding at Harvard Business School, where uh, half of our grade was based on our class participation, and we had a moment to speak in class and reflect what we learned and what we recommended from a case. And have that stand when as soon as we stopped talking, as soon as I stopped talking, someone would come in and disagree with me. <laughs> Has that happened at home? Oh, not nearly like there, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, John, he's generous. <laughs> he's, yes, for sure, absolutely. There are some other folks who've gone to Harvard Business School who are particularly uh, uh, well-known. One would be Al Hubbard, who was yes. here uh, lives here in Indianapolis and has been involved in a lot of corporate affairs and and educational philanthropy, among other endeavors. Another is George W. Bush. Did you ever, they're considerably older than you, but did you ever see them at a mixer or a reunion or anything like that? And what did you think of, of their, or specifically the president's approach as he talked many times about I'm attacking this problem like it's a business problem. I know Al Hubbard. Uh, He and I served together on the Lumina board, and we've crossed paths over the years. Um, I I guess I, uh, I agree with the approach of looking at a problem as a business problem, which I think means... Again, trying to assess where we are against where we want to go and what we're going to do about that. Did it make a difference in your career going to Harvard, given that you dabbled a little bit in politics? In other words, is that something you couldn't have predicted for yourself coming out of your educational opportunities and experiences? Or is that something that had been in your DNA because of your experiences at home and talking about the issues of the day. I think I would not I don't I would not have predicted it 
And I think especially after moving from my home state to Indiana um, and not being sort of grounded and rooted in the same experiences as other folks here. So I... And I think I ended up taking very naturally to the challenges of governing and feeling like the quality of good governing was extremely important to lots of aspects of people's lives, but m- more focused on that than, than politics per se. I, don't, I, I never felt really grounded in Indiana politics. And were you a Democrat Early on? Yes, always a Democrat. Always. Always a Democrat. Never a hint of Reaganism or... Well, you know, I was in... Spiro Agnew or any of the other giants. I was in business school when Ronald Reagan was president. And I... While I say I've always been a Democrat, I think that is a, you know, a strong value that this country be for everyone. And I don't think that is... I think that can that is a value also held by many Republicans. And sometimes I think it may be a question of just which values come first in our own mind. Is it that about is it that this system should be about everyone or is it that this system should live within its means? And I think like many political questions it ends up it needs to be both. And that I try to focus on figuring out how do we do both? What, what is the, what's the right formula to make this work? Um, we asked Bart Peterson in our, in our podcast with him, kind of when he became a Democrat, and he grew up, kind of matured during the Vietnam War uh, Watergate era. Was there a, a defining moment for you that you say, I'm a D and not an R, or is it just something that you just, gradually said, I like these positions and these these elected officials or ideals more than these others? So when I was in grade school, living near Harvard Square, that meant living near the Cambridge Common. And so at 12 years old, I had the benefit of the political conversation that went on in the Cambridge Common in 1968. And I think between um, the I Have a Dream speech and Watergate and the the many, many fights for civil rights, um, I related to those. And there I was, you know, sort somewhat, you know, to some degree in the heart of sure. a you know of of Democrats, and my parents were Democrats, so I think it was just always that way. Those values very much resonated with me, and it wasn't so much about not being a Republican; it was about being a Democrat. And the Democrats were in the ascendant, and for so many years, in the not only the '60s but the '70s, and. Uh, I read a book this past summer called Camelot's End, and it was about the primary challenge of Ted Kennedy uh, to Jimmy Carter. And and the things that you were talking about just a few seconds ago are really the themes that Senator Kennedy was campaigning on at that time. 
Do you remember that race very well? And and where were you living? Were you still in Massachusetts area in yes. 1980? Do you, do you kind of remember how that was happening? There had to have been a significant pull for anyone named Kennedy at that time. Well, yes, I remember it. Um, and I certainly remember the debates about should Ted Kennedy be in there challenging Jimmy Carter? And would I say that I had a particular wisdom about that? Probably not. Um, I think I just took it at face value that two great leaders wanted to speak their truths and I'm sure did not appreciate all of the political dynamics and gyrations going on beneath that. That was that was not something that I really understood or was privy to or thought much about. I was much more about what are the espoused values and how are we going to get that done. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We were talking about your education background a little bit. Do you have a particular engineer in history whom you favor or find partic- uh, find more fascinating or impactful than others? Wow, that's a good question. I haven't probably haven't thought about that for quite a while. Um, An inventor perhaps in the realm of engineering and mechanics? You know you know the people that I think of when you ask that are the people that I knew. So, for example, on the 58th floor of the John Hancock Building in Boston, you see a full glass building with a dark stripe right around that floor. And the reason that dark stripe is there is because behind it is a tuned mass damper that was designed by my control professor, uh, David Wormley, because when the John Hancock building was first built and the wind blew, the building swayed and the windows fell out. And he fixed that. Now, okay. (laughs) Okay, let's start all over. (laughs) He built a what? So he built a what's called a tune mass damper. So, you know, I've never seen it because it's it's behind the, the shield. But when the wind blows, there is a system of springs and masses that moves around on that floor to counteract the sway of the building in the wind. Those are called tune mass dampers. Um, sorry. And um, so... Why that floor? Does it matter whether it was on that floor? I assume it was in order to be the most effective at canceling out the the effects of the wind and keeping the building stable at a point that was going to be most helpful and prevent the windows from falling out. I hope he made a lot of money. I hope he did, too. I hope he did, too. <laughs> Is there another one? Or I did a history uh, TV show with P.E. McAllister, God love him, and uh, my thesis director at IPY, 
named uh, Professor Ken Cutler, and we used to do these history shows, 10 greatest generals, uh, 10 most impactful deaths, you know, stuff like that. It's a lot of fun for history nerds. Uh, We did one on the 10 most uh, impactful discoveries or inventions. And a lot of what I put forth were just household items, air conditioning, indoor plumbing, central heating, electricity, that sort of thing. Is there something in that realm where you're like, that invention, that that engineering marvel changed our lives? Can you think of one or two things where you're just like, this? without X, we wouldn't have Y? Well, engines certainly comes to mind, whether it was the steam engine or the diesel engine, the idea that you can take a fuel or you can heat water and cause that energy to run a manufacturing plant or a vehicle. Um, You know, there are so many inventions um, I was actually have changed of, have changed everything. I was right? thinking of James Watt when I asked you the original uh-huh. question of the uh-huh. invention of steam power. So, well, steam power was huge. Electricity providing light was huge. Um, a, a, a diesel engine that could be put in a vehicle and allow a, ve- a vehicle to move independently um, and have the controls that a human can direct that power and go exactly where we want to go. All of those are. Um, kind of unimaginable not to have them. Was there an aspect, before we move on, but was there an aspect of engineering, the engineering world or or engineering epistemology that threw you? Like, man, I just don't get this. Was one harder than the other? I'm fascinated with people who can understand things that I don't understand, which means basically anything with numbers and equations and formulas. And so those minds like yours that can so brilliantly both articulate and dissect that sort of thinking are just compelling to me. And one of the reasons that I ask questions is like, okay, what was hard for you to understand in the realm of something that you understand so well? Well, I think the... uh I think the forces of electromagnetism, I think certain aspects of physics um, are are a little hard to fathom. I think the theory of relativity is hard to fathom. So, yes, there are many <laughs> things that are um, that are unfathomable. And yet somebody has said, here is how you can describe this phenomenon using mathematics. And even if the phenomenon is really hard to fathom, if you can accept the mathematical model that is approximating it, then you go ahead and use it as if you understood it. That's as close as I'll get (laughs) to understanding it. You came to Indiana, recruited by Cummins, one of the really, really terrific organizations, companies in this state, still to this day. Absolutely. With a a great number of of employees, um, some of whom I know, whether it's Laurel Judkins or Melina Kennedy or Blair West, there's several of them that are good people doing wonderful work. But you left. And why did you leave? 
I had uh, several really great years at Cummins, the first five in the manufacturing plant, the next two in the uh, Columbus office building. I had a colleague there, Christine Letts, um, who was recruited by Evan Bayh to be his first commissioner of transportation after he was elected governor. And he told Chris he wanted to bring business management techniques to government. And she gave me the chance to come along with her and be her deputy in the Department of Transportation doing highway development. And that sounded like a whole new thing and interesting to learn more about. And I just agreed to go do that. Was this part of his first term? He's elected in 1988, yes, or this, was it later? Yes, it was in his first term. She joined immediately, and I joined in May of 1989. Did you stay there? I stayed there six years. So, yes, I stayed there a long time um, and uh, went from highway development to overall transportation planning and had a great opportunity to learn the state. I... I I think I have been on every state road, which means every community within the state of Indiana, learning how a transportation project was seen by the community as something that would transform things for them. And it was it was great. So does this background make you more or less patient with the orange cones? Oh, more, more patient. Right. So see, you, I see the value in the orange cones. <laughs> I know that it'll pay off. It makes me less patient with the strips that are cut out of the center of the road, though, without any smoothness, you know, between them and wondering who got in there and was on the right of way and cut this strip in the road that's making us all <laughs> jolt in our cars. Well, you know, we're Hoosiers, so we're both very upset that the roads haven't been repaired and are equally upset that the roads are being repaired. I bet that goes for everybody, right? <laughs> I think that may be true. Uh, are you someone who thought that you this government was just going to be a dalliance and then you were going to go back to the private sector? And if so, it didn't really turn out that way. Yeah, I think that's what I expected on the front end, but... You know, the world of serving your fellow citizen. Evan Bai used to talk about the privilege of making a contribution. And I'm not sure I appreciated that or understood it until it was over, in, you know, many years later in 2005. But, um, yeah, I mean, believing that our work is making a, a valuable difference for people is a great feeling. And yes, it really uh, stuck with me. Did you, you left, you said, in, if I remember correctly, 95? Is that what? I left, yeah, I left DOT in uh, 95 to become the budget director. And in fact, it was while I was on maternity leave um, at the DOT that I got a call from Bart Peterson, who was then Evan Bayh's chief of staff. And while I was off, that switched over to Joe Hogsett as Evan Bayh's chief of staff to complete the deal. But I came back from maternity leave and from the Department of Transportation and into the job of state budget director. We need to do a deep dive and find out 
How many times Peterson and Hogshead have had the same job? There's at least two? I guess there's at least two, right, right. <laughs> and I don't know. I can't think if there are more, but that's a that's an important one. Well, you know what? That's one of the great things about politics, and I say it on this sh- uh, podcast and say it in private conversation and when I talk to folks as well, and that is you meet if, – if you're willing to be open-minded – and not psychotic, you meet the best people from your party and no party and the other party just by being cordial, knowing that you're not going to agree. But as my friend Joel Miller and I used to say, sometimes it would be, good morning, Ralph. Good morning, Sam. And that would be a takeoff on the old cartoon with the coyote and the sheepdog. That was a good one. And you can meet, and you did meet, and I want to ask you about this right now, some terrific people in your time in the Bay administration. Talk about some of them, some of the folks you met. You mentioned Joe Hogsett, you meant, who we hope to get on the podcast soon. You mentioned Bart Peterson, whom we've already had on. Talk about some others, just people you met and how they helped form your career and your life. Well, Bill Morrow was the uh, chief of staff when I first went into the Department of Transportation. And he was an excellent person at keeping us all organized and our eyes on the prize, focused on what it was we were going to accomplish. Uh, I think he was followed by Fred Glass. Fred Glass was the executive assistant for transportation when I was hired. So he was actually the one who did my interview. Um, Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Um, Pam Carter. So Pam Carter was probably the first candidate that I worked for in Indiana when she was running for attorney general. I was working at the Department of Transportation, but also driving her around. And, you know, she's a person who is absolutely so centered on her values and then how those were going to translate into the role of attorney general. So she was an inspiration. Chris Letts, who brought me along with her, she was uh, she she was responsible for my what was my motto for a long time, which is facts are friendly, and uh, <laughs> she. Uh, so, you know, she gave me the opportunity originally to work in state government and was just so good at clearly connecting how what what work needed to be done in order to reach the goals that we were after. Talk about your career, please, a little bit in the later 90s and tell us about when and why you decided to join the Bart Peterson administration after he was elected mayor in November of 99. So after serving as state budget director, I spent a couple of years as secretary of the Family and Social Services Administration. And then I had the opportunity to work with Joe Kernan on the startup of the 21st Century Research and Technology Fund. And we had just been through the first several months. The General Assembly had appropriated $50 million to create partnerships between Indiana businesses and universities, new products, new headquarters. And we had just organized the first peer review and allocated the first uh, 
20 plus million from that fund to projects. And then Bart Peterson asked me to come be his controller. And uh, did you join the administration as soon as he won? So I did. I was there on, on day I was one. there on January 1st of, of 2000, uh, incredibly relieved coming in as controller that, what did we call it then? What was the big scare about how, whether Y2K. our- inf- Y2K. thank you. That, uh, and whether our systems were in fact going to be working that day, and thank goodness everything did, and on w- we went. I want to say that, well, I know for a fact, I can't remember the exact context- Chris, but remember Susan Brooks said she was the last person to leave. So Susan Brooks, current congresswoman who was deputy mayor under Goldsmith, that was her particular project was making sure that that the city didn't fall apart at Y2K. And she goes, it was the biggest nothing I've ever been involved with. Well, I don't know if she said she handed the keys to you or well, she handed Ro- the keys to somebody. Yeah, Robert, said. you uh, you connect it all here, don't you? Because <laughs> so thanks to Susan Brooks, yes, uh, Everything worked. And, of course, I think most things worked around the country as well. And uh, the, and, I, and I think there were, could have been many glitches, but I think that was a, uh, a time when all the preparations really, really worked well. People was, thought it through. It was successful. And it was taken seriously as a potential doomsday. Yes. You've had some heady gigs. I mean, I, we haven't gotten to the part where you're lieutenant governor uh, under... Governor Kernan, but I mean, I mean, you're not running the rallies. You're no. running big, big agencies. I, what was it like to be? I mean, FFSA is gigantic, and being in charge of the budget—that's a tremendous amount of responsibility. What was that like? What was it like to be in the budget agent and tell everybody no? Well, because that's it, what you do. You and know, then in FSSA, I bet you have to tell people yes a lot because you want to be helpful. Well, FSSA was a real education. Yes, absolutely want to be helpful. FSSA serves a million Hoosiers. And when I started, we served a million Hoosiers through 235 different funding sources and sets of rules. So that's where, you know, that's sort of where an engineer says, okay, we're trying to provide the same seven or eight fundamental supports to empower people, right? We need a place to live. We need something to eat. We need health services. They're different depending who we are, but the building blocks of life are the same for all of us. And to have that many rules from a distance uh, to work with when you're trying to respond to an individual in a situation. Um, so yes, it was a it was a big organization. It was also an organization that really benefited from stepping back and rethinking how do we use these resources to serve people the best. Because a lot of the folks that FSSA serves are. Desperate is a state of mind, perhaps more than an economic condition, but I think it's relatively accurate. People come to you because, like, you're our last hope. Well, you know, so in FSSA is the Division of Mental Health. So people with the fewest resources that have mental health problems, people with developmental disabilities, um, and then, yes, people whose resources are low enough that they're getting financial assistance from the state, either through t- 
welfare, temporary assistance for needy families, or Medicaid. So yes, it's, uh, it's people who are the most vulnerable, either because their resources are so low or because they have a disability or mental health problem. You go to the mayor's office. Bart Peterson wins in November of 99. It's the first Democrat mayor of Indianapolis in 32 years. Um, we've not only had uh, Bart Peterson on the podcast, but by the time you listen to this one, we will have posted our podcast with Paul Okeson, who was Ballard's chief of staff, and Michael O'Connor, who was... It was senior, my chief of it staff. It was your chief of staff. <laughs> What was it like in those, and I'll say heady years, I think that's fair to say, years of the Peterson administration, that first term when there was so much going on and all these new people with a new set of priorities, even though Mayor Peterson talked a lot about how he and Goldsmith were not that far apart on stuff, and certainly Ballard and Peterson weren't that far apart, but, but it was a whole new era, and you were right there. Just like you were very close, just six months, into the new era at the state with the first Democrat governor in 16 years. So obviously you're a good luck charm. Well, I, it's, it, isn't it exciting to be part of a team that comes in and has a goal and needs a plan and needs to execute the plan when the paper wants an answer by tomorrow of what, you know what's going to happen and it's a great it, it is a lot of pressure on a group of people but i think it's the best team building one could possibly have and you know one thing about these great leaders that you've described is they know how to build a team around themselves to get the job done so, and Peterson yeah. had a terrific staff. He had a terrific staff. Um, well, I think in general, the the leaders have a terrific staff. I tell people all the time who are meeting Greg Ballard, and I've said this on the podcast, you know, I'm meeting Greg Ballard for the first time, you know, what should I say to him? And I always say the same thing. Compliment his staff as mayor, and you have him. I said he might even tear up on the spot. And I can imagine that Goldsmith and Luger and Hudnut and Peterson and obviously Mayor Hogsett feel the same way. And they're immensely proud. And Mayor Peterson articulated that on the podcast. Immensely proud, not only of the people and the work they did in his administration, but all the work they've done since leaving his administration. Is that sort of, of teamwork atmosphere, everybody pulling the same direction to make the la- to say to make the mayor look good? But that's kind of what you do a little bit while you're helping the city. You want you want to perform for your boss, the mayor of Indianapolis. Did you have that sense that, that man, we've got a chance here to do great things. Let's go do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, perform for your boss because performing for your boss means you're serving the people in a way that they recognize is a job well done. And that's the goal every day. Is there a particular initiative or event during your time in the Peterson administration, of which you are most proud? Well, one thing that you know comes to mind first is the negotiation of the combined sewer overflow with the EPA. And I think, I'm sure as you know, and 
maybe many of our listeners know, we used to have 130 locations uh, on the White River and it, and its feeder tributaries where in a storm, when a lot of rain starts to come down and the, the sewage plant can't take in all of the uh, sewage, that we start to... We, we used to send our sewage into the river in 130 different places in the city. And we developed a plan and negotiated it with the EPA that we would have a certain amount of time to stop doing that. Um, and that has become the big, uh, you know, what is now the citizen's gas, uh, huge tunnel uh, so anyway, so that was a very um, exciting time. Design These are big things that aren't sexy, for lack of a better term. Right. I hate big to say this, for but Greg couple, Ballard would say the same thing. Right, for a couple billion dollars, right, which you hope to keep underground. <laughs> um, but we're going to have, you know, we're going to have a clean White River, and we're going to have a clean uh, Pogues Run and Fall Creek, and the signs now that urge everybody to stay out of the water, especially when it rains. Uh, we're not going to have to have those forever, and I think that's going to be a huge opportunity for the city to use our many riverfronts um, as a as an asset that you can't do when they're dirty. That's exactly right. I think the to your point, the, the White River area is the part that's screaming for something for the city. It's the next level attraction that the city's been trying to do. I mean, there's other ones too, but but the White River is the one that, that basically cuts through the entire county and right. the city. Is it, isn't it going to be fantastic to open that up to all that you can do with it when that's a clean body of water? Absolutely. Did you see yourself staying in the Peterson administration for as long as he was there? Or did you say, you know, it's time to go back to the private sector uh, before you got this phone call we're about to talk about? Yes, I thought I would stay with the Peterson administration. Loved it. Didn't know if I could keep going as controller. It's the hardest job I've ever had. It's the most relentless job that I've had. And it's so I, you know, it wore me out. Um, <laughs> but I loved it. And I certainly didn't have any plans to do anything else. Well, the most brainiac and powerful and wonderful person of the Ballard administration was controller David Reynolds, who once referred to you as his favorite former controller in my presence. So I know it's true. And I would just look at him and he would shake his head no. And I'd be like, David, I haven't asked the question yet. He goes, well, we don't have any money. So if the question's about money, we don't have any. <laughs> Was that, did I sum up your role pretty quickly there? Uh, well, I remember when uh, Evan Bai interviewed me to be budget director. I think, you know, uh, he had had Frank Sullivan, and then he had had Gene Blackwell. And um, so the bar was set high, but it was the last two years of his administration, and things were running like a pretty well-oiled machine, and it was good economic times. But his major question was, can you say no? Um, <laughs> and so, yes, there's a lot of, there's a lot of saying no. But hopefully there's also 
the why that goes along with it that you know keeps keeps the team together and you do find money for people occasionally absolutely yeah you do find money for the things that are most important to get done through a a very tragic event and that is the uh, untimely and unexpected death of governor frank o'bannon in chicago yes Joe Kernan becomes governor of the state of Indiana, former prisoner of war and uh, all-time Hoosier hero. And he has to name a lieutenant governor. When did you get an inkling that you were on the list? And please talk to us, the Leaders and Legends audience, about that process. I... I met with Governor Kernan at his uh, condo with Mary Downs on the 30th of September of 2003. And as I mentioned, he and I had worked together briefly but really well on the startup of the 21st Century Research and Technology Fund. As lieutenant governor, he was the chair of that board, so he was responsible for getting that process started and we, Mike Gary recommended me to him, and he hired me as a contractor to do that, and we worked together really well. It was clear that he wanted top performance, but he was going to make sure we had a lot of fun getting there, and uh, it, it, was, it, it was a great, um, a great relationship, a great pairing. I loved working for him. Um, So September 30th, uh, we met. Uh, To hear him tell it, he and Mary had an agreement that they wouldn't make a decision, you know, that day. And yet we started talking and he then said, well, why don't you join me as the lieutenant governor and Mary tried not to, you know, elbow him too hard. But and who is Mary? Tell Mary, Mary Downs, uh, uh, Governor Kernan's chief of staff and his, his good, good friend and counsel. Um, and, uh, so wait, wait a second. So, so he off, he's, there was a tacit agreement not to make a decision that day. Yet Governor Kernan made a decision that day. He did. He did. He made a, we, we, made, the, we made a decision in the moment. And uh, what what did you say? I said I, th- I I said well no to convince him to break the deal. Well, I didn't know there was the deal. <laughs> I didn't know. Um, you must have been one heck of an interview. Well, I, yeah. I I I I could feel what he wanted to do, and I think he could feel that I would be a really good lieutenant in helping him with 15 months to go figure out how to carry forward what Frank O'Bannon had been doing and what he wanted to do and help mobilize the organization in the short time, you know, the state in the short period that we had to do everything that we could do. And that we were very like-minded on that, and we had the experience together of putting together an operation Albeit for a much you know smaller uh, operation um, for the 21st Century Research and Technology Fund, but you clearly knew state government. I mean, if you're the state budget director, nobody knows state government better than the state budget director. Yeah, I had done. You proved trans- your loyalty. You know, you'd been a loyal member of of 
administrations. Yes. You clearly were a valued member of the Peterson administration. And I had been a controller and, um, you know, Joe Kernan had been, before he was mayor of South Bend, he was the controller in South Bend. So he had a... You know, so he had that perspective of the experience that I had had and how he thought I would apply that in the job. And and he was not planning to run at that point, right? He had decided not to run. So he wasn't trying to find somebody who was going to help him politically. And in fact, I was politically extremely uncomplicated. Um, <laughs> and I think that was helpful, too. And And, and he had obviously decided that he wanted to choose a woman and that it was time to have a woman lieutenant governor. And he had this opportunity to make that happen. Because there'd been at least, I know Anne Delaney was a lieutenant governor candidate. Right. Who uh, her, that ticket lost. It was 84, I think, I think. And was there any hesitation on your part? No hesitation. Because you, you know, know, Lieutenant a, Governor, a you're panic. a little bit in the well, Lieutenant Governor, you're a bit, a little bit in the public eye, and to your point, uh, Kernan as Lieutenant Governor had decided he wasn't going to run for governor. He becomes governor because of the tragedy, and then he doesn't decide he's actually going to run for his a term in his own right, which would be the 2004 election, until a little bit later. Yeah, for several weeks, right? So, who told your husband John, and who told Bart Peterson, the mayor? Well, I told uh, both of them. Uh, coincidentally, Bart Peterson and I were having lunch and t- to talk about what what we would do in the next term. Um, and it was just a couple of days after I had spoken with Joe Kernan. So I told Mayor Peterson that um, Governor Kernan had asked if I would serve as lieutenant governor, but that we weren't ready to say anything for a while. I was going off to my brother's wedding, and there were a few other things that were happening. And so between – so I told um, – I, I told Bart Peterson, but none of us told anybody, I think, until the day of the announcement, which wasn't until the 20th of October. So that's a pretty big secret to keep. You may recall that there were lots of lists that came out of who Joe Kernan would be considering. I was never on a single and you, list, not and one. And were you snickering? Not one. Well, I, you like, yeah, no, come I, on was, now. I was holding my breath sort of thankful that thankful partly that I was just showing to Governor Kernan that we could keep a secret. (laughs) Yeah, that's important. So you were or are the first female lieutenant governor in the history of the state of Indiana. When the announcement and I can vaguely remember the announcement. uh, It seemed from the distance, from a distance, like an absolute joy. Is that how it felt to you? It did. It did. Um, The folks from the city walked down Washington Street with me from the city-county building to the state house for the announcement. Big, huge group of us, including the mayor. So that was really great. Um, And I think that as you said, this came out of tragedy. This came out of the loss of Frank O'Bannon. And as you've said, that, you know, despite political differences, 
you know, political leaders can be well-loved. Frank O'Bannon was well-loved. And I think the uh, that extended then to Joe Kernan. And I think that extended again to his selection of me. And certainly I had known people in the General Assembly from my work in state government. And I think I was seen as an honest broker who did everything I can to get the job done the way I was being asked to do it. Um, And so I was approved unanimously. I think that was partly because people didn't expect us to run. And so there was, you know, so the generosity (laughs) was, uh, was prevailing. But he did decide to run. And then he did decide to run. Were you stunned? Were you stunned? <laughs> I was stunned, yes. Because you didn't see yourself in the role as a campaigning political ticket member. Yeah, I, yes, that's that's correct. Did you ever consider saying, you should find somebody else? No, not when he said uh, that he wanted to run and he wanted me to run with him. I... I think I was silent for almost a minute, and he teases me about that and tells that a lot. But, uh, but no, I never. I, I had to get used to the idea. But no, I never considered saying no. Did it come natural to you being a a political stump person? Because you're running against. Uh, Mitch Daniels in 2004, and his running mate is Becky Skillman, someone I'm assuming you had to have known I well. Did, I did know, and yes, yeah, and liked it, and liked very much. I know. We need to get her on the podcast. She would be the only—she's the only one we haven't—female lieutenant governor we haven't had on yet, so we, we need to make—actually, Governor Holcomb said he'd help us, so remind me to make a call. Sure. And did it give you pause being in that role? Because there well, are things I, you, you know, have to say and do as a candidate that you don't have to say and do if you're not a candidate. Well, there are certainly places you have to be and, yeah, and people you need to see as a candidate. I don't know if there are things that you have to say that you wouldn't otherwise have to say or you just have to find the right ways to say them. And, you know, you you joked at me earlier when I answered a question. You, you asked me sort of what I learned at MIT that I apply. And then after I answered, you said, well, I sort of understood that. That's not good in politics, right? It's really important to not be thinking out loud and, uh, you know. <laughs> Tweeting out loud? Think, no, thinking out loud, to right, to, to connect with people and... I spend a lot of time thinking about the future and how to solve a problem, you know, for the future. And really, and and in politics, you want to connect directly with people based on what they're thinking right now. And I had to learn that over and over and over again. Because needs are more proximate for a voter. Help me get through this week. Yes, right. Right. Don't don't. Yeah. Don't tell me what you're thinking about is, you know, how you're going to change the system to, <laughs> you know, to deliver on this in the future. All right. That's so I, I had a lot to learn. It didn't go your way. Right. You, you lost to really what was a, a, a transcendent 
campaign. I mean, the Mitch Daniels campaign in 2004, much like the Barack Obama campaign in 2008, is just universally thought to be a marvelous effort. Um, it had to hurt. It had to be tough, especially when you see someone like Joe Kernan um, lose. Did it affect you in any way other than just the temporal and tactical connection to the date and the loss? Well, it changed my career. In many ways, it ended the career that I had gotten so used to. And I think one is so busy doing the work and being in a campaign that it's hard to spend time thinking about losing and what will happen then. So I would say, yes, it was definitely an upending experience. Were you able to stay? Have you stayed in pretty good contact with the governor over the years? Yes. Yes. And in fact, the first job that I took after we left office was in South Bend. And I basically commuted from Indianapolis to work for Global Access Point, the owner of which bought the South Bend Union Station and pulled all the fiber cable that was running along the railroad lines into that building and made it a high-speed data hub and created a high-speed fiber network in Indiana. And I had been interested in learning more about IT infrastructure, and that opportunity came up, and it allowed me to continue to see the Kernans and to get to know Maggie better so that, you know, I could be be a real friend of the family. So, yes, we are very good friends. Before we get to the five questions, we end every podcast with the same five questions. What, as an entrepreneur, which is what you currently, that's your I think a napped way to describe what you do and your career. When you look back as an entrepreneur to your time in government, do you wish you knew then that you know now? Like entrepreneurs really need help or really need understanding in these areas and government just doesn't give it to them. And I wish I knew that then. You know the way I the, the way in which I am an entrepreneur is in information systems that are designed directly to help government. So I don't think so much about what government ought to do to help entrepreneurs. I I think about what can entrepreneurs do to help government optimize its delivery and effectiveness. And that is something that you learned during your time in government, that we do good work and we're not just a bunch of, of Simpson facing bumbling bureaucrats that we do good work in government. I tell people who have a chance to work in government city or state or whatever, like, You'd be surprised how much good you can do, not necessarily by going out and doing it yourself, but taking three pieces of paper and choosing paper number two and sticking it in front of the mayor and saying, please look at this. They have opportunity and the proximity to get things done through the power of government that can help people. And I think that's an underrated aspect of public service. I think you have said that very well. I also think that there is an alignment 
among a community between government and the not-for-profit community and business that would be very, very helpful in making the changes that we're after faster. And I think that that also is something that, I think that's something that information can help. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are here with former Lieutenant Governor Kathy Davis, and we are ready for the five questions. You ready? Ready. I hope I'm ready. What was your first job? McDonald's. I made shakes the first night, and then I was on the counter. I did that for the summer. I started the night of my 16th birthday. McDonald's. I just, I hate to say I just left there, but I did. What was your first concert? Wow. Um, It was either Segovia, the classical guitarist at the Boston Symphony, or Deep Purple at the Boston Common, or Aerosmith. I would say those all happened very close to the same time. Aerosmith was a Boston band, so we saw them a lot. Um, Deep Purple, yeah, played on the Common. Segovia may be open for Deep Purple? <laughs> no. Not that I know of. <laughs> if you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Hmm. Well, a few come to mind. I think I'll go today with Evicted. Um, I think it is such a telling story about the value of stability and uh, in, in people's lives and what we do when we destabilize families. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? I think the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King. That's been after the march in Washington. So the march and the speech. It's been a couple, two or three folks have said that for sure. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Might choose Pete Buttigieg. That was Bart Peterson's. Love to, you know, hear the update from Pete as he's spent this time on the campaign trail that he has. Do you know him a little bit? I do know him, yes. So who knows? I'm, you know, well. You're on the list? I doubt, I doubt I'll be able to, but I suppose it's not outside the realm of possibility. Well, if he's a smart man and he appears to be a smart man, he will have you on that list and have you as a close advisor. We are very lucky and very honored to have the first female lieutenant governor, Kathy Davis, on the podcast today. She is not only smart, she's smart enough to marry John Davis and kind enough to give us a little bit of her time. 
We are big admirers, and thank you very much. Thanks, Robert. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.